Oh, hello, Castanets. How you doing? How you been? You good? That's good. I'm glad. Glad to hear it. We missed you. I definitely missed you. I'm not going to ask you how you are or how you were for the last two weeks because who even remembers? Also, who's good at this point right now? Um, Charlie looks pretty good. Charlie's a gato. <laughs> Gatos are sleepy. Oh, sha. Sha, sha, sha. Anyway, we're sorry that we were gone for two weeks unexpectedly. Yes. We didn't mean it. It was unexpected, so, I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Also, we're going to be gone for two more unexpected weeks. Yes, however, but we have some bonus content. This is stuff we recorded for our short-lived Patreon. It became too much extra work working full-time, mm-hmm. doing a podcast every week and then also doing a patreon (laughs) it was it was too much we got we got too big for our britches bit off more than we could chew our stomach was bigger than our eyes yeah smaller than our eyes that's all yeah i think we've exhausted the (laughs) but we recorded this way back in season one we Mm -hmm. recorded it to pair with season one episode eight ice yes we did the thing kurt russell Kurt Russell and his good floppy hat. His giant hat because otherwise you would not know which one was Kurt Russell. Exactly. So we're going to release that this week. And then next week, we are going to release one that we recorded to pair with Season 1, Episode 10, Fallen Angel. Yes. We recorded an episode about Predator 2. And honestly, guys, I hadn't seen the Predator movies until then that's right we watched all of them just for this right and i wanted to do predator 2 because it's not as good of a movie it's easier to make fun of than predator 1 that's right predator 1 is just awesome yes i agree and then my favorite was the alien versus predator because they were going into antarctica (laughs) and i was obsessed with the wind chill on their skin and doing oh my gosh but, oh, man. But I haven't listened to these in over a year now, so I'm excited to hear them. Yes, and also, there have been eight people born in Antarctica. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember that from the research. <laughs> and I remember that their skin would have absolutely gotten frostbitten. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. all. I, That's all. I did read the book for The Thing. Yeah. And there's some commentary about the... And we watched the original as well. Oh, yes. Yes. It was wildly different. Yeah. Everything was wildly different. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing is one of my favorite movies. Oh, yes. It's such a great movie. Very good. So, hope you enjoy that. Hope you enjoy Predator 2 next week. (laughs) And then hope you enjoy when we come back on the 13th with an episode for The X-Files, which I'm very excited about because you guys out there... Like I said in the last episode, if you know, you know. And if you don't... You'll find out on the 13th. You're going to have to wait a few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you guys for uh, coming back to us after our little hiatus. Yes, thank you. And we hope you enjoy the next two weeks of non-X-Files, but still... Adjacent. Sci-fi... Well, also, they match up with episodes. It's true. So it's very true. It's very X-Files adjacent. Yes. See you guys. Bye. Greetings, patrons, domestic, <laughs> international, and extraterrestrial. I'm Dave Reed. And I'm Kristen Riley. And this is 
bonus, bonus content. content. So what are we doing today? Since we just released episode eight, Ice, we are going to do The Thing. Oh, not just The Thing. The Thing from Another World. And, and who goes there? Yes. I'm very excited for this. Yeah. Because we decided two days ago to do this, and since, well, we decided to do the thing a little bit ago, but we decided two days ago to do The Thing 1982, plus watch The Thing from Another World 1951. Yes. And also I read... Who Goes There by John W. Campbell that started this whole thing off. Primarily, we will be focusing on the John Carpenter, The Thing, 1982, because that is what the X-Files episode is paying homage to. But I do have a lot of trivia and some quotes from the novella, and we'll just kind of intersperse some things from the original movie as we go. The Thing was originally released June 25th, 1982 to an audience of who knows how many people. (laughs) But it had a budget of $15 million and had a box office of $19.6 million. It was based on a screenplay by Bill Lancaster. The music was by Ennio Morricone, who cinephiles will know as a legit movie score dude. Oh, okay. Yeah. And directed by the one and the only John Carpenter. Yes. I want to open this discussion with a little backstory about Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, written by science fiction historian Sam Moskowitz, because it's just fascinating. I read this through the library's version of the novella that I rented and read, so this was in that whole little cluster of what is this book. According to science fiction historian Sam Moskowitz, Who Goes There had an autobiographical impetus. Interesting. Yes. Campbell's mother and aunt were identical twins and enjoyed teasing him in a game of substituting one for the other while he was in their care as an infant and young child. I don't like that at all. Moskowitz theorized that it was this game, it's not in air quotes, but pretend it's in air quotes because this seems horrifying to a child. It is this game which led to uncertainty of identity and clever masquerade, which led to feelings of helplessness and terror that Campbell funneled into what would be his greatest novel. Wow. People in the 1800s were sociopaths. <laughs> they were also, of all of the things, it seems like they were bored for entertainment. Yeah. And I guess I don't know how old he was when he wrote the book. I know it came out in 1938, so I'm assuming he was older, but he might not have been. He may have been 19. That's true. I do not know. I didn't look that part up because I just thought this intro to the novella, the 1950s film, and the 1980s film just really give you something extra. It's an extra layer to know that all of this came from really a cruel joke to play on your children. Yeah, that's rough. So The Thing 1982 has, I've looked up on IMDb and Fandango, the little summaries, because it's always interesting to see what they say. IMDb says, a research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. Yeah, I guess, yeah. I, I guess so. Because like, I think at the beginning they, t- they say that it uh, digests the victim. Right. So, yeah. I wouldn't have put it that way because shapeshifters are a whole other monster to me. But now I don't know why. Yeah. What do other shapeshifters do? They just look at you and change, right? I think it depends on the, the <laughs> specific 
monster. Fandango says paranoia spreads among a team of Arctic researchers as they battle a deadly alien organism that assumes the shape of its victims. I like that one better because it really hits the paranoia. It does. I think that's important. The rest of the trivia I pulled from IMDb, there was a wealth of trivia for this. I didn't pull all 562 bits of trivia. (laughs) Why? I did pull some. So if you're interested after this, go and look at some the rest of it. There's a ton of stuff. But the first thing that I noticed was in the opening credits, the Universal World logo is different than it should have been, than it air quotes should have been. Yeah. I noticed that right off. And so when I found this bit of trivia, I was like, ha ha! <laughs> Go me in my 1982 who wasn't alive brain. The original Universal World logo was not used in the film's opening credits because of confusion between the logo and the and then the saucer crashing into Earth. Okay. One suggestion was to use the logo, zoom into space, then see the saucer crash into the logo and Earth. Instead, to avoid confusion, a simple white titles against black was used. But it was interesting because I noticed it and then found that, and then you had a dream about the wrong logos being at locations. <laughs> yeah. All in the same 24-hour period. So here is a bit of trivia, and then we'll get into the thing, 1982. But I believe, I feel this is an important bit of backstory that didn't make it into the movie, but was in the minds of the creators and actors. While discussing the character of McCready, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell discussed having McCready be a former Vietnam War helicopter pilot who was involved in some sort of tragedy and since felt disgraced by his service. Oh. Yeah. Because of this, McCready suffers from PTSD, alcoholism, and severe insomnia. Okay, that's why he's up late all the time. All the time. He's always saying he hasn't slept. Yeah, I don't think he sleeps at all in the entire movie. This backstory ultimately did not make it into the finished film, though it explains why McCready was awake to hear the dogs whining, why he isn't phased by the grotesque violence, and it also adds deeper context to the line, I'm a real light sleeper, child. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff happening in the beginning. One of the main things is the first time we see Kurt Russell, I noticed he has just gorgeous eyes. Oh, yeah. My goodness. Just, I stopped for a moment and was like, wow, look at those eyes. There's the opening scene, maybe not, no, definitely not the opening scene, but his opening scene in the movie Stargate. He's supposed to be all depressed and suicidal. And he's got long hair instead of, you know, short hair. But they just, like, do a close-up on his eyes and you're, well, I'm sorry that I... (laughs) <laughs> Didn't feel terribly for this man because I was too busy swimming through the blue of his eyes. <laughs> yes. He looks up and I'm like, whoo! <laughs> <laughs> in the first scene that we see him do much in, he's looking hot and bad at losing chess to a sexy computer lady. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Cheating bitch. <laughs> yeah. And then he pours his scotch into the computer. Oh, what a waste of that good quality JNB scotch. But also, what else do they use that computer for? Just chess. I think it says like Chess Master 2000 or something <laughs> like that. Hell, so they're going to be there for months and he loses one match immediately <laughs> and ruins the game for everyone for the next three to six months. Well, yeah, it's no good. It's not a good machine if it always cheats. <laughs> so why bother with it? 
Well, that he started with that because of the levity, because this next scene is pretty heavy for me and any animal lovers. Does the dog die.com just explodes if you type this into <laughs> it? Right. So a Norwegian helicopter is circling the base where the Americans are at. They're first shooting at a dog who's running around in the it's a gorgeous scene. The landscaping is amazing, but the Norwegian helicopter is flying around, shooting at this dog that's running. It's they're shooting. It's running. They're shooting. It's a it's a long opening scene of them shooting at this dog. Eventually, the dog runs around to the Americans who have come out of their facility to find out what all of this helicopter noise and shooting is about because they are supposed to be the only ones here. So none of this is... It's not unusual that there's another research team somewhere, but they shouldn't be here. So there's a lot of stuff going on. So they all come out to look. The dog runs up to one of the men and starts licking him. This turns out to be George. The dog jumps up. I don't know if it's supposed to look aggressive because it does not. It looks like it is just super happy to see him and he's probably got treats in his vest. Yeah, no, it's not supposed to come off aggressive at all. I guess that's true because of how it needs it, it needs to be taken in. They don't know this dog, but this dog is automatically loved and adored by all. Yes. The Norwegians are shooting at the dog, and because George is now basically holding the dog, the Norwegians are shooting at George. So then the Americans start shooting back. There's a shoot. No, they're, the Americans don't have any guns. No, because from the... They just hit the deck. The ones outside, the yeah. inside. Well, it's one shot. Was it just one? Yeah. Because first, the Norwegian guy grabs a grenade, and like it's a Three Stooges movie, throws it behind him into the helicopter... Or next to the helicopter. How did I not write all that down? <laughs> and then he's digging through the snow to try to get it, and it explodes. And then the helicopter explodes, because it needs to. Then, right. the other Norwegian guy shoots George, yes. grazes his leg, yep. the dog runs away, everybody's hiding out, and then he, he's stalking through, and then Gary yes. <laughs> takes five minutes to knock all of the glass out of the window <laughs> with his pistol. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then just, boom, right through the eye of the Norwegian with the gun. Yes. And before both Norwegians are dead, they're yelling, but they're yelling in Norwegian. And this is one of those moments where if you spoke Norwegian, you know the entire plot of the movie. Yes. Because they tell you the plot of the movie. But the Americans don't speak anything but English, and so they have no idea what's happening. They just take the dog. As George is laying on the ground shot, Clark comes out. Clark is the dog handler for the facility. He's cuddling the dog and they bring the dog inside. <laughs> and I wrote, the shooting at the dog scene hurt my feelings, but the environment is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> We're inside the facility now. Dr. Copper is stitching up George and Copper 100% has a gold nose ring. Yeah, I refuse to believe it. At least halfway through the movie is when I accepted it. Even though I've seen this movie a bunch of times and it's plain as day. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just has a gold nose ring. So not only is that interesting, from the book, we have our first excerpt. The book opens and it describes what the facility is like. Because we see it and we hear it, but the sense that we don't get is smell. The way that the book opens is fascinating. So here's how the book opens. Remember, we're inside this facility that these men are living in for three to six months. It's unclear, but for a long time. The place stank. The queer mingled stench that only the ice-buried cabins of an Antarctic camp know. 
compounded with reeking human sweat and the heavy fish oil stench of melted sea blubber. An overtone of liniment combated the musty smell of sweat and snow-drenched furs, the acrid odor of burned cooking fat, and the animal, not unpleasant smell of dogs, diluted by time, hung in the air. <laughs> uh, so in the book, is it like a whaling facility? No, it's. I think the seal blubber is for the... Oils, Oil, the, the lamps. lamps. Yep. Okay. I thought that was gorgeous. It continues on for another couple of paragraphs describing how this place smells, and I just find it fascinating because that's the one thing that cinema can't translate to you. Yeah. Inside, uh, we meet the coolest dude, who is also the cook and turns out to be Nalls. He roller skates through the facility. He just looks like he's having a great time. And I wrote, roller skates are making a comeback. This guy's whole style is making a comeback. <laughs> he'd be the he'd be a popular TikToker right now. Oh my gosh. The number of roller skates I've seen out on Bayshore is climbing every day. I said, unfortunately, most of this movie is freezing, so enjoy his style now. <laughs> <laughs> we have to have this scene for a variety of reasons, but partially the setup here is so that we know who's who. Because in about after about 15 minutes in, you can't tell. Yeah. Everybody's wearing layers upon layers upon layers. So we have to we have to care about these people right now. And they might not be who they are. That's true. So it's oh, that's I wonder if they did that on purpose. Ah. I love that. Windows, the radio guy, can't reach anyone. He's been trying and unable to reach anybody in the outside world for days, maybe weeks. It's been a while. He hasn't been able to communicate with anybody. He keeps trying. I did find out that McCready and Windows are just the names of these people. And McCready sometimes goes by Mac, but it's not a Mac-Windows rivalry <laughs> in 1982. It just happens to be what happened here. That was another piece of trivia that I recalled but didn't write down. So they can't reach the outside world. They have this Norwegian helicopter that's just blown up and shot one of their guys. They've acquired another dog. There's a lot going on here. <laughs> and McCready and his hat decide that they are taking the helicopter with Copper to see where the Norwegian's base camp is or was. They decide that they can't reach anybody so they're gonna go investigate. Meanwhile, at the Americans' facility, the dog that came inside is prowling around the building while George, the guy who was shot, and Nalls roller skates irritate each other over music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, Nalls is listening to Stevie Wonder. Yes. Superstition. George is a dick. Fuck that guy. Well, the funny thing is, George comes out of his room and hits the speaker button yeah. and says, Hey, can you turn that down? I was shot today. <laughs> <laughs> So Na says something like, yeah, okay, and skates over to the stereo and then turns it up. <laughs> no, he doesn't touch it at all. He pretends to turn it down. Oh, I thought he pretended to, I thought he turned it up, but then nothing happened because the volume No, he, he like waves his hand <laughs> next to the knob to, oh, I turned it down. <laughs> it was, it was a fun scene. And now that I think about it, he was shot in the leg, so he can't dance. That's why he doesn't want Stevie Wonder playing. That's what it was. If you can't dance, you can't be listening to Stevie Wonder. While they're doing this, we see the dog walk into one of the men's rooms, but we only see the shadow of the man. So we know something's going to happen, but we don't know what it is and to who. But if you have keen eyes, you see the profile of the man in the shadow and it's Vance. Actually, it isn't. Say what? John Carpenter didn't want anybody viewing this to know who was 
the thing. Really? So he didn't use any of the characters. Oh, this, for decades now, I've thought that was Vance. Isn't that brilliant? That's, yeah, good job, John Carpenter, but why do I think that that's Vance? Probably because you're trying to figure out which one of the actors it looks like the most. Yeah. And that's who fits most closely. Huh. I love that tidbit. So now we cut to the helicopter landing. All of that was happening back at the American base while McCready was flying to the Norwegian's base. McCready keeps calling the Norwegians Swedes. <laughs> it's very American of him. <laughs> but Copper keeps correcting him, which is good. And it doesn't just happen once. It happens every time that McCready says Swedes, Copper says Norwegians. Yep. <laughs> so you can tell they have this kind of a rapport where it's like, these are who these people are. Yeah, Mac might be saying that just to annoy Copper. Right. And Copper is going to take the bait every single time <laughs> and correct him. The buildings at the Norwegian base are all torched. They find a bloody axe and a door when they go inside and a dead guy in a chair. This scene is intense. The guy in the chair has his neck and wrists slit with a straight razor that he's still holding. His neck is separated. The gore in this scene is wild. And the blood dripping from his body froze as it was pouring out it's so graphic it is yeah the guy's throat i don't know how you cut your own throat that deep me neither it's got to be a quarter a third of the way through oh yeah you gotta really want it, it <laughs> if you're cutting that bad it wasn't getting just to the carotid artery or anything it was taking the head off yeah it was intense i wondered how cold it would have to be to freeze blood as it was dripping out of your body but i couldn't find a definitive answer so if anybody has that please let me know i thought we were gonna get a Kristen science corner i tried i couldn't find a good solid answer well that's science because yep. you can't just take whatever nonsense they give you i didn't want to do that i wanted to give real facts and i couldn't find one so they look around the facility and naturally because it's horror they split up copper collects notes they're all written in norwegian but he knows that there's information in them that they need so he wants to take them back and mccready checks out the rest of the place after seeing that dead guy i wouldn't have split up <laughs> after seeing that dead guy i wouldn't have stayed okay i may have still they seem like they need to explore fine they need to know more than they do know but man if he hadn't been there maybe split up and look around because it's obvious there's nobody here but whoa don't take any chances at that point what mccready does find is a party pool made of ice it's like a giant jacuzzi or one of those lap pools it's just a big rectangle that you could have everybody jump into except it's ice. He calls Copper over to check it out. They examine it, but they're unsure of what it is, what it means, and they go outside. Outside, they find torched, desiccated bodies or a body. It was unclear in this scene. Oof. And it becomes clear later why it was unclear if it was one or multiple bodies. McCready suggests they look for a shovel. I, for some reason, thought that they were going to bury the bodies. Me too. That's what I would do. But then I also thought, this place is cold enough to freeze warm blood dripping out of that guy's body as it's still coming out of his body. Yeah. So I'm sure the ground is too frozen to bury anything. Yeah, I kind of meant just cover them up. Well, good news. That's not what they're doing. Yeah. And now that I think about it, they've got that big chunk cut into the ice. They should drag it over there and dump it in there. Yeah, but they don't. No. 
They take it with them. Yes. Naturally, they transport this humanoid back to the American base. I call it a humanoid because it has human features, human-esque features. Multiple heads, several limbs, one head that's trying to split into two. It's, It's a lot. The melted faces look pretty good for 1982. The gore and the artistry is really well done in this. Yeah. It's happening in 1982, so whatever else happened in 1982, but viewing it today, 2021, still just the practical effects, the the terror that they are embodying in these elements, I love it. It holds up so well. But there's some stuff that comes about that in, in the trivia at the end. But I did make a note that these melted faces look better than things I've seen at Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. <laughs> well, of course. It's a professional that made these. That's true. That is true. So now they have the creature back at the American base and everybody's standing around it looking at it. In the 1982 version, you can still, you can see it. In the 1950s version, it's just a block of ice, so you can't really tell. And also in the book, it's mainly a block of ice. They're unsure what it is yet. But they are all standing around, looking at it, trying to decide if it's dangerous or not. It looks dangerous to me. Yes, it also looks dangerous to me. But McCready says, I know the thing is not earthly. It does not seem likely that it can have life chemistry sufficiently like ours to make cross-infection remotely possible. So he doesn't think that it can infect us with whatever its millions of years old creatures are on it. I would say there is no danger. Dr. Copper, again in the book, says, none whatever. He asserted confidently, man cannot infect or be infected by germs that live in such comparatively close relatives as the snakes. It's a weird way that they stated it, but that's literally how this is written. And they are, I assure you, much nearer to us than that, he indicates the the creature. So I thought this was very interesting, especially in the time of coronavirus. Yeah. So I looked up the origins, if we figured out what the specific origins of coronavirus, COVID-19, are. And we haven't yet. But here's what I did find. COVID-19 was considered to have originated from snakes in January 2020, according to Scientific American and uh, several other people. Then it transferred to bats and to humans. So initially, it was thought to have come from snakes to a degree. Coronavirus infection, coronavirus the virus, does jump from people to humans and back again. So this specific statement was real interesting to me and I had to highlight it immediately because they're saying it doesn't transfer, but we know now it does. Oh yeah, all kinds of, that's how these horrible diseases do come about. They usually start in an animal and then jump to humans. So I do want to continue this a little bit to restate that the origins remain unclear at this time because I'm trying to be as fact-driven as possible, and I know this is a very highly, this is a highly sensitive subject. The outbreak origin investigations often take years, so it's not unusual that we don't know yet. It hasn't been enough time. For example, it took 14 years to nail down the origin of the SARS epidemic, which began with a virus in bats that spread to humans. 
most likely through civets. To date, the complete Ebola virus has never been isolated from an animal in the region where the world's largest outbreak occurred between 2013 and 2016. And some culprits of these outbreaks remain unknown to this day. So it's not unusual that we don't know. And it's also not unusual that it takes years and sometimes decades to find out. But because he specifically said, oh yeah, no, something that snakes have can't jump to humans. And we know so much more now. Yeah, it's just wrong. It's it's, it was just incredible. Out of science corner now. So while they're all talk, standing around the frozen creature and it's thawing or they're deciding whether or not to thaw it or trying to figure out what to do, the dog keeps standing around silently and it's just watching. It is the It hasn't made a sound since that opening scene, but it, it keeps coming around and it's like it's listening and paying attention. It's exactly what it's doing. The doctors, Copper and Blair, decide to autopsy. They autopsy not only the humanoid, but also the Norwegian. And the Norwegian is cleared through toxicology, so they know that his, what looked like erratic behavior, wasn't caused by alcohol or drugs that they could find. The humanoid has normal human organs. This scene, I can't believe you didn't catch it or exclaim when it happened, but Wilford Brimley, uh, Blair, pokes at the thing with his pencil eraser, and then immediately goes right to his mouth with it. Ew! <laughs> I couldn't believe you didn't say anything. Ew! You want to know what makes that even worse? When Scully puts her hands all over something and then puts her... No, that specific scene. You know what makes that Wilford Brimley scene specifically worse? I don't. They used real animal organs in that scene. Those were not props. Oh, well, he no, he like taps the outside of Okay. Still super gross. Well, it's still, yeah. It, all of it's gross. Ew. So now we cut to evening, and the guys are hanging out in the rec room. George, who was shot, I, I couldn't remember anybody's name until the end, so I kept having to remind myself, starts to be spooked by the dog, so Clark puts it with the other dogs. The dog hesitates to go into the cage. <laughs> Basically, it's that same fenced-in area that Mulder gets put in in episode 10. And the other dogs are just lying around. The original dogs are lying around, not responding to this new dog. Yeah, the dogs don't get it right away. No. Apparently that's how good the duplication is. Yes. Also, in the book, they talk a lot about how the creature can read minds. Oh, okay. So I'm wondering if the creature is somehow reading these dogs' minds in addition to replicating a known dog. The original dogs aren't reacting. They're just laying around being good dogs. Clark leaves, and as soon as he leaves that that shelter area, the dog area, the original dogs start going nuts. Because the fake dog, the, the thing, face splits open like a demigorgon. Yes, yes. It's, it's a lot. And then tendrils shoot out <clears throat> into the other dogs. And if you like dogs, you close your eyes at this point. Yes, I actually have that, basically. Clark takes forever to come back. The dogs are howling and whimpering and terrorized. They're just, they're completely terrorized. By the time he, Clark does come back, two dogs escape. And it's unclear how many dogs have been killed versus how many are dying versus how many are away. We do know that two get out and run away. Or... Do two duplications of dogs get out right away? I don't know. Yeah. I know. That's never addressed again in the movie. It absolutely is not. Those dogs are... Gone. Somewhere. Yeah. Clark locks the monster, because now the 
new dog has turned into something <laughs> horrifying. I wasn't looking. <laughs> it sounds like there are more dogs barking. It Oh, it does get quiet as the two dogs run out or the replication dogs run out. We're not sure. It gets real quiet. But as soon as Clark locks the monster into the kennel, there's more dogs barking. So it got quiet and then, and then it's barking. But then we look and we see that it's the monster making the dog sounds. Yeah. And then all of the men come back, come in from the rec room. They had been collecting guns and flamethrowers. When they get there, what look like umbilical cords are crawling out of the monster dog. We see several other dogs being tormented. I said, I hate this. Then the monster grows arms straight out of goosebumps and then eyes like that trash heap in Fraggle Rock. I don't know. I couldn't watch the dog torture. I looked up Fraggle Rock things instead. Grows another couple of dog faces. Ugh. So, trivia, sound editor Colin Muat. I apologize for mispronouncing his name. <laughs> he achieved the dog's cries in the film by rounding up all the neighborhood dogs, placing them in his house, and furtively stalking around the house in a dark trench coat with the collar up, whilst tapping on windows and rattling doors to frighten them. Oh, weird. So those dog sounds... I could tell in my soul were terrified dogs. And then I found this and I was like, I knew it. I knew it. So, ugh. So now we've thrown flames at the monster dog. And they put it out way too fast. Immediately. They catch it on fire. They put it out. Oh, so cut to the 1950s movie. When they throw fire on that monster... They just light up the entire place. The room they're in, the things that they're using to guard themselves. Because they're just taking buckets of kerosene and throwing it at it. It's, it's an intense scene. If you haven't seen the, what is it, the thing from another world, yep. at least watch that monster scene. It's amazing. And of course, practical effects. Yeah, it's, it's 1951, so there's just they just lit that place on fire. Oh, amazing. So there's fire throughout. There's fire in the book, there's fire in the first movie, there's fire in the second movie, there's fire everywhere. In The X-Files, there is fire, but we don't see it, because at the end of Ice, they say that they have firebombed the facility. Good thinking. So, the fire is throughout all four tellings of this story. (laughs) We go back to an autopsy room. This is, I said, this is a horror movie version of peeling back an onion because they are cutting things open and peeling it back and revealing a dog face and then revealing (laughs) a dog leg and then (laughs) revealing some guts. It's just, again, a lot. We find partially digested dogs and imitation dog parts inside this monster. Clark and Blair treat a surviving dog. So we see some of the dogs made it. In the book, some of the dogs made it for a little while. <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> in the 1950s movie... You don't really show the dogs. The dogs are there sometimes, in case you're a dog lover, just so you know. Blair questions Clark about the dog. What was it doing in the rec room? How long had he been alone with the dog? So the paranoia is setting in here, which seems a little late to me with the melted people, the monster dog, the imitation dog parts, but the paranoia is happening. Blair actually puts this together immediately. Yes. And I love that. I love that there's at least one person in this movie that gets it immediately and not everybody's like, oh, I have no idea what's happening until (laughs) the last second. And they're like, oh, we figured it out. We know exactly what to do. One guy immediately goes, oh, this thing replicates other things and I know what to do. 
Blair's character is very interesting, and I like the John Carpenter version because in the book, he's different. Okay. And in the 1950s version, I'm not sure which one Blair was. Was he the fancy doctor? No, that was like Houlihan or something like yeah. that. Yeah. There was, I don't think there was a Blair. Blair's a really good character, but in the book, he is wanting, he's he's basically the opposite of the John Carpenter Blair. Okay. So it's, you know what? Read it. It's only, it's a novella. It's short. McCready and two others go to a site they found in the Norwegian's documents. So we return to those documents collected by Copper back at the Norwegian's base. There was a film and they saw the, on the film, they saw the dig site, something space related. Do they see the entire UFO? I think they might see the entire UFO. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't quite remember. Now I'm getting some of the different scenes mixed up in my head. Yeah, but they are like celebrating their find and everything, just yes. like the very beginning of Ice. Yes, yes. McCready's statement hat now makes sense because everyone is in full Arctic gear and he's still wearing his hat, so now we know which one Kurt Russell is. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's just a dope hat. It's a weird hat, but I the whole time I was like, what is this? And then we get to this scene and I'm like, oh, all right, I get it. Now I know who Kurt Russell is. The Norwegians had been putting thermite into the ice, so they were blowing up ice and trying to find some stuff, and so they need to go see what's happening there. There's a cool repelling scene into the icy depths. We find out one of the two that repel down the ice, one is McCready and the other is Vance Norris. And he says that it's 100,000 year old ice at least. And we see wreckage in the ice and snow. Wreckage and probably tools that the Norwegians were using. It's kind of a mix of things. It's unclear, but it's abandoned. <laughs> at, this, at this point, we're back at the, at the base the American base, and I wrote, Palmer is the molder of the group. He truly believes. <laughs> he's also high out of his mind this entire movie. One point, he's breaking apart hash to smoke hash. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, I don't know how he got so many drugs down there. Me neither. good for him. Just high the whole time. Uh, and I said that he's not serving us hashtag hot molder looks, though. No. We, got Kurt, we, we have Kurt Russell for that. He does have that vest. He, he has a vest on, though. He didn't say anything about his vest. Uh, he does. It's a, I think he's part of the Guardians motorcycle gang. Mm. Well, everyone's back in the rec room. and Motorcycle club. Sorry. <laughs> everyone's back in the rec room. The tension is building. And we don't know what's happening. With the men, the dogs, the storm, because there's a storm coming in six hours, and the alien monster. There's nothing clear. Everything's starting to unravel for us, the viewer, and Blair seems to know. So that's how we know. Overall, it's all tense because it's a group of men stuck in a cold, isolated location. And something bad is happening with no, no uh, access to the outside world. They have to deal with it, and they don't know what they're dealing with. Yep. That's a scary situation for anybody. Not me. Oh, not you. Nope. <laughs> You'd be. So That's where cold. I thrive. Oh. In the cold, forty below. Yeah. Is that why you moved to Florida? Exactly. Why I'm in Florida. <laughs> Do you have a statement hat somewhere? I used to have a statement hat. I don't oh. have it any. Don't have it anymore. Now I have the, my statement golf visor. Oh, gross. <laughs> There's a computer simulation in this next scene that I originally thought was a video game in the rec room, <laughs> but it wasn't. It was a cute computer simulation. It shows the assimilation of the alien cells and the dog cells. It's really cool once I figured out it wasn't 
you know, like Galactica or something. Blair is running the computer program and he runs another program and on the screen we see text and it says that there's a 75% chance that a team member has been infected and then he runs another calculation and the world will be devoured in 27,000 hours, which you did math for, so math with Dave, would be just over three years if this alien virus contaminant unknown gets out into the world. So meanwhile, the crew is moving stuff out of the storage room. The storage room is where they're holding the humanoid body that's still frozen, but is beginning to thaw just because, you know, it's not in a refrigerated, specifically refrigerated room, it's a storage room. It's cold, but not cold enough. Windows lifts the sheet to look at the humanoid so that we know that the humanoid's under the sheet then replaces the sheet. When he turns away to talk, to say something to George, the body under the sheet moves, but no one but David noticed. <laughs> then we see this blood goo dripping, which was pretty solid. I really liked the consistency of this prop because it wouldn't be warm blood dripping. It wouldn't be that consistency because it would be still kind of frozen. There'd be ice crystals in it. Yeah. Whatever they used, I liked. And Windows leaves to do something. When he comes back from his errand, George is being eaten by a string of sausages. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's what it looks like. Um, George runs outside. Yes, George, who was being eaten by a monster, runs outside. The whole crew follows him, but they don't touch him. He uh, falls into the snow. He's on his knees. McCready lights a flare. There's lots of fire and flares and stuff in here. And when we look at George initially, he looks normal, but then his hands are wild. It looks like he has really long fingers at first, but then as you get a better look at them, it's basically hands on hands on hands. <laughs> it's another really cool yeah, it's very prop. Good. I love it. Somebody kicks over gasoline and then McGreedy lights George up with his flare. There was not a lot of discussion about what was going to happen. <laughs> they just burn their friend alive none, none needed because that was not george right they realize from the notes that a body has to be completely burned I'm not sure how they know but they figure out that the body has to be completely burned because any pieces left over any remnants are still capable of living in the book they go into great detail about this and break it down it's really interesting but it's all the same concept where there's the monster as a whole and then if you take a piece of that monster it's no longer part of that original monster it's now its own creature trying to survive on its own which does come up in the blood scene that we're about to get to. But in the book, it's explained in a way that makes this scene make even more sense and how they got to this make even more sense. And while they're watching the fire, someone remarks, where's Blair? Oh, <laughs> all by himself. Yes. McCready is still outside. Everybody has gone in to look for Blair. McCready's outside and sees Blair run from the helicopter with an axe. So you know some bad stuff's happening in there. He checks out the helicopter to find out that the inside of the helicopter has been destroyed. There's pieces missing. There's all kinds of stuff. It's, it's bad. And then he hears gunshots inside. Blair's inside destroying everything. And he's monologuing while he does it. Yes. You think I don't know? I know. <laughs> I know what's going on here. I know what needs to be done. You think I'm crazy. I'm the only one that knows what's happening. He says that he killed the remaining dogs and Clark isn't happy with this and Clark runs off to check. He finds his dogs have axes in them. <sighs> no more dogs. <laughs> Except the two mystery ones that are out there. 
but we never see them again. Okay. So, yes. Uh, the remaining crew get Blair down. They take him to a shed. They give him a shot of something to calm him down. And McCready, it's a McCready keeps finding liquor everywhere because in the shed there's liquor and he finds it and he sets it in front of Blair. And when he's, they have a little bit of a dialogue here, but Blair is essentially being kept in the shed because he's now a danger to everyone and his hysterics are going to cause other people to become hysterical and you have to separate that. So they put him in the shed, they lock him in from the outside, and right before Blair leaves, he says, trust in the Lord. And Blair says, watch Clark. <laughs> now they're completely cut off. There's no radios, which we had no radios before, but now we have no helicopters either. And there's this huge storm coming. They have to wait for spring for a rescue crew, but McCready doesn't want to wait since they could all be turned by then. Makes sense? Childs asks how they'll know who's turned when a thing replicates what it kills, and Copper mentions a blood serum test. In the book, this is the biggest part of the story, is wondering how to know who's been turned. In the movie, it's a short conversation and then the, the actions about it. But all of this is fascinating. So they go to find the blood. They have blood supplies on hand because you need that in case of emergency. But they find that the blood has been damaged and only Gary and Copper have access through a two-person security system to get into the blood. Gary keeps the key. Copper is the only one who ever opens that door. And when he is done with the blood locker, he gives the key back to Gary. So it's a they're the only two who could get in there and somebody's destroyed all of the blood. Nobody knows who it is because Gary says it's not Gary, Copper says it's not Copper, and tension tensions continue to rise. Windows is out of is not having any of this. He's really he's really scared. Windows is scared. I would be scared. I think everybody would normal normal people would be scared. He runs away to get guns. Gary and Windows play out that gun scene from the X-Files. <laughs> and it comes out to saying them saying someone even tempered needs to hold on to these weapons. Unlike in the X-Files, they don't throw all of the weapons outside. They just have the handguns and knives taken away from the people who were just about to use them and give them to McCready. Now, it's at this point where I trust Windows. Windows is the only person if I'm not infected, Windows is the only person I trust right now cuz he is freaked out and you're not going to be freaked out like that if you're the thing. Ooh, you think? Yeah. I think you should read the book. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe not. Well, I trust Windows right now. I think that's a good a good call, but they play with that in the book, too. So they stand around a fire, torching more remains after all of that scene, and at flamethrower point, Mac orders them to drug Copper and Clark. Remember? They needed somebody who was level-headed. So now Mac is holding a flamethrower and basically holding everybody hostage and giving them orders. And one of them said, I think Gary maybe says, I'm not a prisoner. And Mac just points the flamethrower right at him. And I said, yeah, nobody's a prisoner until there's a flamethrower. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so they go and um, Copper and Clark are drugged. Mac goes away to be alone, which is a terrible idea in this scenario. And he's drinking and recording basically what is his last testament. He intends to hide the tape in case they all die. Fine. 
Fuchs, who I had to write down how to say his name <laughs> because I keep wanting to mispronounce it. See? How did you? Fuchs. <laughs> Otherwise, I was going to call him Fuchs the whole time. Fuchs is looking for a cure or test since Copper and Blair are out of commission. There's a reason why he makes sense. I can't remember what it is, but he does. He's like the next in line to make sense. A fuse blows while he's in the lab looking for something, and he's lured outside. And then he's gone. The remaining team fights over who's going with whom, because now they have to go find Fuchs, and who's going to go check on Blair. So they go, they do figure out who's going with who, because of course nobody trusts anybody. They all eventually figure it out. And a, a team led by McCready goes out to find Blair. He's eating out of a can, and he has a noose hanging and ready right next to his chair. <laughs> it's just chilling there, and they never address it. Nobody and does. And it's so good. It's... For being a joke about suicide. It's the best. It's a, it's a comical prop. Yeah, and I'm wondering at this point, has Blair been turned yet? In this scene, I think he's been turned at this point. Because he's been out there by himself too long. He's just a sitting duck. I don't think he was turned earlier when he was destroying everything. Because he knows that this thing can get out and just take over the world. He's trying to prevent that. That's what I think. In, mm. in that scene when he's taking an axe and everything you think you think i'm crazy but i know what's going on here i know what needs to be done i believe him when he's saying that this scene he's real calm and he keeps asking to go inside i just want to go inside come I on won't, mac i won't hurt anybody i'm better now i think he's been turned in this i think you might be right he says um the thing that's that's doing all of this stuff isn't fuchs but he definitely wants to come back inside Please and thank you. He says that he's all right, but Mac locks him back in the shed anyway. Windows finds Fuchs remains with Nalls because they, oh, it was those three who went to look at, look and talk to Blair. Windows and Nalls now know that Fuchs is gone. He's all burnt up. Yes, which is interesting. Mac speculates that maybe he did that to himself to That's, prevent from being taken. Yeah. And it wouldn't make sense for the thing to burn him up. Like it that. really wouldn't because another thing that they talk about in the book is how the thing wouldn't want to pick off all of the humans or the dogs or in the book also the cows wouldn't want to pick them off to kill them because it would want to turn them and if they're dead it can't do anything with them yeah so that's a really good point so he may have killed himself to keep from being turned which in the in the most horrifying way yes this is not a funny suicide joke no no this is this is rough they send Windows back in to report on Fuchs, and McGreedy and Nas go to McGreedy's shack because the lights are on. McGreedy says, we're going to go check this out, and Nas is like, why, or why would we go to your shack now? And McGreedy says he had turned off the lights yesterday when he was there. What we assume, they, they go out. The storm is starting to pick up even more because we know this huge storm is coming, but just like in hurricanes, you get the... The bands coming through. Everything's getting worse. The vision is getting worse. And they're using the sight lines to get anywhere. So Nas comes back alone while the guys inside are boarding up the doors and windows and, and everything. He has McCready's torn clothing. And we know it's McCready's torn clothing because it says McCready on it. Which is interesting because earlier they found some long johns that had been ripped up. But the name had been removed. Yeah. So that is a clue exonerating McCready. I think so. And they don't realize that. That's what I was thinking too. Somebody is clearly trying to set him up. Yes. So McCready is locked out because now they, one, 
he should be lost in the storm because Nas just left him there. Yeah, cut the guy in line. Yes, awful. And two, they're boarding up everything to keep the thing out and to keep the storm out, basically, while all this is happening. McCready breaks into the storage room. They can hear him in the next room. And Childs breaks into the storage room with an axe. They find McGreedy there looking like he's the abominable snow monster. He is covered in ice and snow and just, it's obviously cold. Uh, McGreedy is holding a flare and a bundle of dynamite. The rest of the guys put the flamethrowers down. <laughs> Not very useful against a man with some dynamite. Nope. He basically says, put that down or I'm blowing us all up. So this is the point where they're all yelling and stuff's happening and Vance's heart stops. Good timing there. I took this moment to check out the supply room and see what kind of supplies they had. Okay, what was in the supply room? Apparently the biggest thing you need the most in the Antarctic is cases and cases of milk duds. Are you serious? <laughs> there were so many cases of milk duds in there. Wow, and I didn't see them eat milk duds ever. Nope, not once. <laughs> Wow. We got a preview that something was going on with Vance earlier when they were boarding up the windows and things. He knelt over like his stomach was hurting or something was happening. So we're like, ah, oh, Vance is turning. Then his heart stops. We know that something is wrong, but now he's dead. Copper tries to revive him and he takes those, uh, those paddles, those electricity paddles. I couldn't remember the name of them yesterday. I can't remember the name of them today. <laughs> defibrillator thank you you're welcome so he takes the defibrillator and puts the paddles of the defibrillator against vance's chest he shocks him a couple of times trying to get his heart to start and then he goes to do it one more time and vance's chest opens like a big toothy mouth there are literal teeth now and it bites off copper's arms and he dies immediately just immediately my arms got chopped off i'm dead I mean, we did talk about this, so he would have died within minutes because he would have bled out. But I wasn't watching Copper at this point because now Vance, parts of Vance become a spider version of Vance. His head falls off and, and turns into spider head. It climbs on the ceiling. There are tentacles squiggling out of his body. That's before his head comes off. Oh, that's before. And then the tentacles pull his head off, remove his head, and then his head grows these spider legs and stand up and scurry out. And McCready's not looking at the door, the door behind him, and the spider runs behind him out the door. And I'm just sitting here losing my mind. And one of the other guys turns and sees it. And so McCready sees the guy. Then McCready turns around and then just torches the spider head. It's, it's a lot. There's a lot happening here. It's... Ugh. Spider head. Spider head. <laughs> does whatever a spider head. Spider head. Spider head. Spider head. Look out. It's a fucking spider head. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> As a side note here, this is obviously horrifying, right? Obviously. There is nothing like this in the book or in the the thing from another world. You give something to John Carpenter, he's going to make it fucked up. He does. And good good job. <laughs> well done. Horror fans, I think, will enjoy this. Yes, we love you, John Carpenter. Yes, we do. So now there's another standoff as McCready chooses a... <laughs> I just read my own notes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so why I decided to go this route, who knows? I do. Uh, so there's another standoff. 
As McCready chooses a weird time to explore his rope fetish, he um, he wants everybody tied up, which seems I understand what make that it makes sense to him because then he'll be safe, but it's really endangering literally everybody else. Yeah, and he literally does not care about no, anybody else right he now. He doesn't because he knows he's human. He doesn't know who anybody anybody else is. I agree. But they might not be who they are. That's true. Childs refuses to be tied up. Clark sneaks up behind McCready. McCready turns and shoots him just point blank in the forehead. Oh, it's a good moment because McCready's like, I'll shoot you, Childs. I really will. Keith David's Keith David, so you know, he's like, yeah, I'll fucking kill you, <laughs> McCready. That dead on Keith David, perfect. <laughs> but, <laughs> and then Clark just gets domed mm-hmm. without a hesitation. Nothing. Just no, yeah, no hesitation. They talk a little bit about the blood. McCready says, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. And then they talk about why the monster blood wouldn't also just be tissue, even though it's imitating. I didn't write down all of the lines, but this is where they're doing the science discussion about what they're about to do next. Science Corner with Kurt Russell. Yes. <laughs> I said, and then something about how the monster or even the parts of the monster will react to save itself. And this is that through line that I just mentioned a couple minutes earlier from the book to this movie. So, got it. So this is the thumb cutting scene. They Why the thumbs? They cut, oh, they cut the thumb in the book too. Gnaws and windows cut their thumbs first. Really sanitize that scalpel by wiping it on a pant leg. In the book, they sanitize the scalpel in 95% alcohol. Yeah, that's how you gotta do it because you're cross-contaminating. If you cut someone who's been turned and then you cut yourself with the same thing, you just turned yourself. I'm just saying, in the book, he covers it. Yeah, good job, uh... I was going to say Joseph Campbell, but no, that's not who that is. (laughs) John Campbell. Um, McCready heats a copper wire with his flamethrower. And the whole, if you haven't seen this, the idea is that the blood in and of itself is now its own entity. It is no longer part of the other creature. So the blood as the monster will try to save itself. And by heating up the copper wire and burning the blood, putting it into the blood, human blood won't react because it just doesn't. And the monster blood, something will happen. They also do a great spoof of it in South Park to see who has lice. (laughs) I don't know this. (laughs) Cartman comes up with this test because they know one of the kids has lice. So they do all the blood in the Petri dishes and... Mm. everything it's really funny and of course at the end the teacher's like you all have lice (laughs) (laughs) oh now i'm itchy (laughs) so we go through this scene there's a couple of different people being tested um it turns out that Nas, window copper clark clark who has been shot in the forehead and is currently dead and mccready turn out to be human which now gary's the only one with access to that fridge that was that has not been proven human that's a good point palmer is is it palmer is a is the thing. I don't think I've mentioned Palmer anywhere else in this whole thing. I don't think he did a whole lot. He did a lot of drugs and then suddenly he wasn't doing any more drugs. You're right. He stopped. Yeah. Oh, so good. Uh-huh. Oh, I didn't catch it because it's subtle. Yeah. Oh, I love it. He, his creature eats windows, who was a human, and then runs away and blows up outside. How did that happen? I remember Kurt Russell throws a stick of dynamite at him, but he, he was like downed already. He must have got him with the flint. Must have. All I know is this is happening. I'm typing a couple of sentences. I look up Windows is, or not Windows, Palmer is running and blows up. And I was like, <laughs> I don't, 
I missed something, but this is what happened. When McCready comes back, yeah, McCready must have gone after Palmer. When McCready comes back, Windows is turning. The other guys, remember, are still all roped up. (laughs) And McCready torches Windows. Now, Nas, Childs, Gary, and McCready go out to find Blair. So now Gary's been exonerated. Gary is human. So who who fucked up all the blood in the in the refrigerator? I don't know. It's never resolved. I don't know. They go out to find Blair, who's still in the shed. The big storm hasn't arrived, but it is getting the weather is getting worse. The visibility is getting worse. All of this. The shed door is open. Uh oh. And they look around inside. They find that there is a tunnel under the floorboards and the ice. And they follow a tunnel to find a spaceship. What we see is that Blair has been collecting pieces and maybe other other variations of this creature have been collecting pieces and creating a spaceship to get out of this cold location. Oh, that's thank you for saying that because I didn't put that together. I was like, how did Blair put this thing together so fast? All the other ones were doing it too. Thank you for saying that. I did not... <laughs> connect that at all i was just confused (laughs) i was confused in the book it's even better than a spaceship oh what is it in the book it's atomic power for an anti-gravity suit backpack okay so they go into the shed to find blair same kind of situation but instead of lifting up the floorboards and going under the tunnel they find a blown glass thing oh they actually find blair who isn't blair who is one of the creatures and there's a fight and they they kill it but when they look at what he's working on they say that's atomic power that stuff to the left that's a neat little thing for doing what men have been trying to do with 100 ton cyclotrons and so forth it separates neutrons from heavy water which he was getting from the surrounding ice anti-gravity yes We had them stopped with no planes and no birds. The birds hadn't come, but it had coffee tins and radio parts and glass and the machine shop at night. And a week, a whole week all to itself, America in a single jump with anti-gravity powered by the atomic energy of matter. Wow. So I thought that was fascinating. While So back in the movie, they are trying to find Blair. Blair's not in the shed when they get there. Um, And they go under the tunnel, find the spaceship, and they split up again. And I said, why split up after testing everyone? Why are you splitting up again? No, makes no sense. Childs disappears, and apparently he's scampering out in the snow all alone. We see him through a window. He's just pieced out of this whole shed and spaceship area. He's gone. They realize that if they let the storm get to them, the, the American, the humans, if they let the storm get to them without killing the thing, it'll wait for the next team. So they can't let that happen. The humans aren't getting out alive. This is the first time that they admit it out loud. Yep. So rather than dying for nothing, they decide to heat this place up. So now they're looking around for ways to set everything on fire. There's a ridiculous amount of fire in this movie. And this is where I mentioned where in ICE, the military firebombed the base, but we don't see it. And in The Thing from Another World, they, in the preview, they plainly state that fire and bullets don't kill the thing. Yeah. Obviously, since that was the preview, it doesn't show up in the movie as big words on the screen like a comic book movie, but, or a comic book, and then a movie trying to be a comic book. (laughs) But they do use fire in in that movie too. The guys wander around a bit. At this point, it's McCready, Nas, and... Gary. Gary. Until Gary gets fingers right in his face. I'm not there yet. I'm almost there. 
<laughs> they wander around looking for ways to heat everything up, but they find that the generator is gone. Gary says, the generator's gone. And McCready says, oh, do you think we can fix it? And he says, um, it's gone, gone. It's gone. It's, they, there's another scene where they all split up again, and there's they're preparing firebombs. This is where Blair wears Gary's face like a glove. Yep. Nas goes off to find Gary alone. <laughs> we shift the camera focus back to McCready and the bomb making material, and we hear a noise off screen. Bye, Nas. <laughs> McCready lights a stick of dynamite as a graboid from Tremors swims through the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> the monster climbs out of the ground. It's men and dogs and insects and tentacles. It's a lot of things. It's like all of the different parts came back. Yes. Into one thing. Yes. And McCready yells, yeah, well, fuck you too. <laughs> <laughs> and he blows it up with dynamite. The most powerful dynamite of all time. <laughs> yes. And in the next scene, everything is destroyed because the dynamite and apparently the bombs he was making blow everything up. <laughs> Just all of it except McCready. McCready is lit only by firelight. It's a very cool scene how they, they did light it. Yeah. And we were talking about this with a group during a watch party last night about how they were lighting other scenes in other movies. And I really appreciate this scene. Yeah. So good job, John Carpenter and whoever did the lighting for this. Great. Because yeah. we were watching Sinister and horrible job. <laughs> whoever did the lighting for that, you should never work again. Oh, it was so bad. But it was a watch party for uh, with Nightmare on Film Street. So I want to give a shout out to our Canadian horror podcasters who yeah. are just super fun. And if you ever get an opportunity to join one of the watch parties that they do monthly, a couple of them a month, sometimes do it. It's great. Had a great time. Movie wasn't any good. The time was great. <laughs> and then we watched The Stepfather, which was the best way to watch that movie is with that group of people. I swear. I wouldn't know because I fell asleep a half an hour into it. <laughs> it was good. We might have to redo it. And then I say, oh shit, Charles with a flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> and the end of this is really good. I really like how they do this because the two of them face off. McCready is there and Charles is there and they're going to freeze to death. There's no heat. There's no building. There's nothing, no way that they can hide from the elements. And we don't know who's who or what or if anybody's human anymore well child or not Charles uh, McCready most likely is human though he did just blow everything up he did he did blow up the creature but then we don't see anything for a little bit and here's why I think this is ambiguous about whether or not McCready is human at this point because at one point earlier they they decide that they're going to all make their own food and eat out of cans and stuff because they've realize that the cross-contamination can happen so easily. And at this point, McCready's walking around with a bottle of scotch. When he and Childs sit down in that shack, in the remnants, he hands McCready the... No, McCready hands Childs the bottle. Uh-huh. And Childs takes a sip. And as he's taking a sip, McCready smiles. Huh. That's interesting. I have to watch the end of that movie. I like it. Oh, you know what, though? The creature doesn't really have emotions, so it wouldn't need to smile. But why would he smile? I don't know. I think it's ambiguous. No, it is ambiguous, but my interpretation is the creature wouldn't smile because it's... I don't think the creature would smile. <laughs> okay. And that's it. Roll credits. So I've got some, some more trivia. Are you ready for the trivia? Can't wait. First, John Carpenter stated that of all his films, this is his personal favorite. 
It makes sense. It's really good. But it's a little heartbreaking when we find out what, what happened initially with this film. But I did want to take us all the way back to 1982 to find out that on the same day that The Thing opened, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner opened. Oh, no. Same day. The similarities don't end there, though. Both movies met with unfavorable reactions by critics at the premiere and are now considered as some of the greatest films ever made. Yeah, they very much are. Yes. And I think this is a good reminder that sometimes professional film critics don't get it right. Well, yeah, of course not. Well, I know that we know. There's that one guy that gave Citizen Kane a bad review, and now Paddington 2 is the best movie ever. <laughs> Did you like Citizen Kane? I've never seen Citizen Kane. Okay. It seems hoity-toity. Okay, so according to John Carpenter, he takes all his failed movies pretty hard, which seems like... A bad way to be. Oh, I was going to say, which seems like a pretty normal way to be. Ooh, I'm, not everybody's going to like your stuff. But... A failed movie is not the same thing as one person not liking your movie. So we disagree on this as well. So we disagree about the ending of the movie, about John, Mc uh, about McCready being the thing or not. So and do you think he is? I think he is. Oh, you think he is? Okay. Then we do disagree, yes. So John Carpenter takes all his failed movies pretty hard, according to him. But the film's initial negative reception disappointed him the most, this film. Not only was it a box office bomb, but critics panned its gory effects, tone, and characters. I don't know what panned means. I guess they didn't like it. But I wanted to mention throughout how much I appreciated the effects. I didn't really talk about the tone and characters as much as I probably could have, but this is long enough but because they didn't like any of it, especially the gore. Vincent Canby called it too phony looking to be disgusting. Ugh. It qualifies only as instant junk. Wow. John Canby, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Dave Kerr wrote it was hard to tell who was being attacked and hard to care. <laughs> Dave Kerr, take a long walk off a short pier. <laughs> and I do want to say... I did mention that when everybody's out in the open, it is difficult to see who's who. So good job with the statement hat. But when they are being attacked, it's easy to tell who it is. Yeah. That's, that part's well done. I think he's just not paying attention. Likewise, Roger Ebert was disappointed by the superficial characterizations and the implausible behavior. I'm not a Roger Ebert fan. And dismissed the film as nothing more than an alien knockoff. Carpenter was particularly particularly upset when Christian Nibby, the director of the original The Thing from Another World, publicly denounced Carpenter's version, saying, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. <laughs> Which I think would probably be one of the reasons why it hurt John Carpenter's heart, because he loved that movie so much that he made this movie. And, and then... then dickheads try to be clever no, that was the director of the original movie yeah well he's a dickhead trying to be clever in response to the commercial bombing of the film the studio canceled the multi-picture deal they had with carpenter Ooh. who noted that his career would have been different if the film had been successful which yes of course it would have been not surprisingly he was extremely relieved when the film enjoyed a rich cult success following its home video release along with critical re-evaluation it oh. received did Dave Kerr say, you know what, I always loved this movie. I didn't look up any of the guys who didn't like it. But do note that all of the critics in 1982 were men. Oh, of course they were. <laughs> and 96% of all the critics right now are men. <laughs> 
The film is considered a benchmark in special makeup effects. All right. We get to talk about him now? Yes. Okay. His name is... The the effects were created by Rob Botton, who was only 22 when he started this project. Wow. That means he... <laughs> that means he was a teenager when he did the special effects for King Kong. Wow. The 1976 version starring Jeff Bridges. Wow. That's... I didn't know he was that young. That's what it says in the trivia for um, on IMDb. I did not look up his age, but I thought the special effects were great. Yeah, no, they're very good because Rob Botton does a lot of good stuff. He also did the cult classic Piranha. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen that movie in decades. Oh, early 90s at least since the last time I've seen it. I've seen it. And he also did John Carpenter's The Fog. I'm not sure if I've seen that. Oh, that's, I mean, John Carpenter. It's yeah. good stuff. Did The Howling. Ooh. Yeah. And a movie that I found out the other day you've never seen, Legend. Is that the one with Tom Cruise that you showed me? Yes. So we, ladies and gentlemen, maybe we could do a, I don't know, a watch along, watch party, double feature of Legend and Willow. I think that's the only way I'm going to watch these movies. Because uh, when Riley's with us, we're going to double feature those. Maybe we'll try to do a watch party. Well, let us know if you want to do that. I don't think I want to watch a double feature of those movies otherwise. They're great movies. Yeah, you've said that about a lot of movies. And they've all been great. No, they haven't. Every single one of them. No, they haven't. <laughs> Name one. I can't remember any of them. Because they were all great. Because I fell asleep or left or something. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm in to watch some more features that Rob Botton has done special effects on. Like Legend. No, not Legend. But the other John Carpenter movie. Or we could do a whole John Carpenter series, which would be super oh, fun. Um, but this is the end of our first Patreon. And for some reason, I watched two full movies and read a book for it. <laughs> <laughs> and by for some reason, I mean because when I like something, I just go extra. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any other trivia that you want to share, let us know. There's a lot out there. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies.